Film Student, the podcast where we think about film so you don't have to. Despite the fact that we have zero brain cells and a possibility of contracting arthritis in the future because, oh my god, I am 20 years old and I have back pain. Anyways, I'm your host, Mon. And I'm your co-host, Nick. How's your back doing? How you feeling? I am alive? I mean, that's good, right? Yeah. I mean, in all seriousness, I actually think I might have a bad back and neck pain. Like... If anyone is out there with a good pair of hands, <laughs> I'm just saying, but would you like to maybe use it? <laughs> no, no, no homo though. No homo though. Yeah, no homo. Unless... No homo on this podcast. No. <laughs> I don't know. According to like WebMD, back pain at this age usually goes away after a few weeks, which it did for me. Remember like a time a couple weeks ago <laughs> where I was like, my back hurts. I'm going to die. I'm such an old man. <laughs> Yeah, it went away. Anyway, I just wanted to have a little brag because we actually officially have more listeners than Elle and Lee from The Kissing Booth, which was our topic last week. I just want to say thank God for the Americans. The Americans? Yay! I love the Americans. You guys are... That's great. I mean, I love your um, Empire State Building and, like, your donuts and... um, Hot dogs are Americans, right? Yeah, they They're are. American. Well, yeah, yeah. I love, yeah. love those animals. Maybe German. Um, mm, I have no idea. But I still don't forgive you for all, all the things you've done, like uh, the Vietnam War and stuff. So that's kind of a dog move, right? Uh, and you guys have a shit house for a president. And I almost feel bad for you, but I don't. <laughs> 30 seconds in and we've alienated them again. But that's not unlike what happens in this week's film. Honestly, though, it's true. The Americans did some shitty things in the past and even now. But remember, guys, say it with me. Not all Americans are like that. Hashtag not all Americans, right? Yeah, not all Americans. mm -hmm. The film we will be discussing today is something that should have never existed. But like all things that shouldn't exist, (laughs) they exist. (laughs) (laughs) We're talking about Happy Feet. Yay! I actually hate my life now after this film. What the hell, Nick? (laughs) Now you know how I feel. That's how that feels. (laughs) Also, sorry. Um, Yeah, so Happy Feet. Happy Feet is the pro-environmentalist, anti-religion, tap-dancing penguin film that you vaguely remember from your childhood. It centers around Mumble, a penguin who can't sing, trying to fit into a colony, whose focal point is their vocal abilities. Born to a couple called Memphis and Norma Jean, Mumble has the hots for Gloria, a penguin who can't stop singing Boogie Wonderland, but then he gets banished by a tyrannical leader penguin and is alone until he runs into a bunch of Adelie penguins, five of which are like the cool little fellas called the Amigos, who take him to Lovelace, and then by that point you're like in an hour into the movie, okay? I I just saved you an hour. Go watch the other 50 minutes. (laughs) I actually hate these films so much. Like, we might argue about the actual films themselves at the end of this episode, so let's start things off coherently, like good little film students. And let's talk about the director. Yes, the director. You you know, the Venn diagram of people who were surprised that George Miller directed both Happy Feet and the Mad Max trilogy, and people who haven't seen Happy Feet since they were kids, that's a circle right there. Mm-hmm. His thematic consistency mm-hmm. and evolution throughout his filmography is just so persistent. From his anti-authoritarian stance, his environmentalism, and his feminism, although the last one was something that was less present in his earlier films, you can really see that it's been developed through the latter half of his life. And it's a long life. He was born in Queensland in 1945, technically making him older than a baby boomer. Ooh. Boomers are from 46 onwards to 64. The generation before that is often called the silent generation. Boomers should literally like their name though, like Goku Boom. <laughs> I hate those guys. Anyways, yes, I am that annoying Gen Z you see on Twitter who spams fan camps of K-pop stars underneath Boomer conservative threads. You're welcome. R- really? I-, I never see your fan cams. You don't do that. Um, I actually have alternate accounts. Oh, dude. I want to follow you on all your accounts. No, no, you can't. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, anyway, suck it, mum. Google says you're a boomer. And did you know George Miller is actually a doctor? Wait, what? <gasps> like a practicing yeah. do- doctor? 
Yeah, he was a practicing physician until the late 1970s when he made the first Mad Max film. Now, I know that you absolutely froth over the OG Mad I Max, do. Nick. But we're not going to get too far into that today, yeah? But we are interested in the concept of authorship, which is defined as the concept of linking films to the director and the belief that the director's influence on the film is so strong that their vision is clearly seen as though they were the sole author. That's pretty interesting, especially because, like, unless you're a student filmmaker like we were back in high school. Mate, I kind of still am. (laughs) Of course, but, like... Unless you're, like, a little indie filmmaker of sorts, mm-hmm. film is yeah. generally recognised to be a team effort. Like, you can't really say that it's all the director. Well, yeah, but also, that's the thing. See, authorship was a concept born in 1950s French film publication, the Cahier du Cinéma, mm-hmm. because at that time... <laughs> I know, because at that time, a lot of films, especially those in Hollywood, often resembled products of studio assembly lines. This group of French film directors, including the annoying little bitch boy, Jean-Luc Godard, <laughs> argued that cinema should be an art form and praised directors that exhibit genuine personality in their films. Like, the French New Wave directors were critics. So by that definition, Michael Bay is an auteur. Technically... I know that's a little bad one-liner that you think is a little funny, despite the fact that at this point it's beating a dead horse. But the fact that we're talking about him in this context of his perceived authorial signature that he leaves on his films, yes. Oofed. <laughs> right. Now, the interesting difference between George Miller and Michael Bay is how authorship and genre are correlated, or at least it is in Bay's case. See... Michael Bay's authorial signature tends to be located in the stylistic choices that he makes and his adherence to a certain genre. Action, right? Mm-hmm. So, what, like, say what you will about this guy. I mean, he hates women, he hates the gays, he hates the POCs. Literally the most dickwood guy alive. But he makes consistent Hollywood blockbuster action films to the point where you know that it's one of his specific mindless Hollywood blockbusters. Now... On the other hand, George Miller went from Mad Max to a horror comedy to Oscar bait to Babe 2 to the Happy Feet films and back to Mad Max. But despite the wild disparity in genre, all of these films still bear the qualities of a George Miller film. I see what you're getting at, like through the themes and everything. So uh, let's look at the most obvious, consistent theme in Miller's filmography, that giant existential elephant... They're actually elephant cells. Okay, no, I meant like a metaphorical elephant, like the elephant in the... <laughs> this is what I get for reusing a line from last week. Anyway, it's climate yes. change. Well, fun fact, did you know that the amount of heat trapped in the atmosphere and being directed into the ocean is the equivalent of four Hiroshima bombs per second? Bro, dog, come on now. Climate change is fake, man. But also, I'm so scared. We're literally on a planet that's dying because of us. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, fun, fun. No anxiety here. (laughs) Australia has a bit of a history with fucking around with climate change and entertainment, especially in music. You got Midnight Mm -hmm. Oil, Hunters and Collectors, Tism, Paul Kelly. They're all prolific in white boomer Gen X Australian culture. And guess Mm -hmm. what? They're all big SJW cocks. I mean, (laughs) come on. What the fuck did you think? When the River Runs Dry was about. Beds are burning? The lead singer literally went on to become the federal environment minister, for fuck's sake. Wait, wait, is he? I actually didn't know that. He is. Uh, well, he was when Labour was in power. Okay, oh. Peter Garrett. But, oh, yeah, I know. I mean, it's like referencing that cute little sign that you made for the climate change protest earlier this year, right? <laughs> Remember when you could go outside? <laughs> I know, good times. I'm literally going to cry in the pod, guys. Anyway, in Australia, we've actually seen like a massive jump in climate change fiction in the past five years. Mm. I I like, I wonder why. Yeah, yeah, weird about that. But um, while that uptick is interesting to know, it obviously wasn't the start. George Miller has been worried about the oncoming apocalypse since 1979. The first Mad Max film declares that it is set in the near future, and opens on scenes of arid desolation. Not to the point of Fury Road, but it is indeed the beginning of the end, which, actually, yeah, that's just what regional Victoria looks like basically all the time. I mean, I live in Victoria, but I don't know where regional Victoria is. Like, I reckon it's outside Melbourne, guys. Hmm... Anyways, they probably still don't have electricity and running water over there, eh? <laughs> <laughs> um, citation needed. I, I, I think they do, but I'm not sure. 
<laughs> okay, so one of the interesting developments in climate change fiction is the decentralizing of humans as the victims of their own hubris. Mm-hmm. There's been some brilliant climate change narratives that focus on non-human focal points. You can you got stories about the trees, the bees, hell, even time. Time? Like that thing that used to have meaning before this year. Yeah, I know. Yeah, like time. Rem- time. Time mm. used to have meaning. That's weird. Mm. And that's what Happy Feet does with penguins. It demonstrates the negative impact that humans are having on the environment, but it does so through the lens of penguins and other Antarctic life forms. Humans are in the narrative of Happy Feet, but they're not central, and they're framed undeniably as the perpetrators, not the victims. Yeah, no shit, Sherlock. Like, white boomer man is right in some aspects. (laughs) On that point, if you look at the marketing for Happy Feet, there isn't really much of a hint of that environmentalist framing. It's presented more so as a conformist narrative about being yourself and not fitting in when you can stand out. And, like, you don't even see any of the humans. Yeah, that's probably because they look horrifying in this film. Like, oh my god, I remember being a wee lass and turning my TV onto Channel 10 and watching Happy Feet at 7.30pm. And do you know what I see, Nick? Do you know what I see? (laughs) Fucking horrible CGI penguins with boobies. Why do they have boobies? What is the meaning of this? What is the meaning of this? Anyways, I have my psychologist appointment booked in two days as these CGI penguins that gave me PTSD. I have PTSD. Oh my god, I literally have happy feet war flashbacks. <laughs> okay, but animation limitations aside, that's kind of the point to make everything, especially the humans, look as terrifying and domineering as they are, whilst also developing to acknowledge the benevolent role that humans could have the potential to enact, but don't. Looking at you, liberal government. The penguins looking terrifying is a side effect. The humans are called aliens by the wildlife. They're the horrible, eldritch other that is supposed to be this big, scary threat. Until we get that fairy tale ending where tap-dancing penguins make the humans stop pollution and overfishing practices. Whoa. Whoa. Nick, what if we were the aliens this whole time? Galaxy brain moment. Mind blown. Whoa. Actually, there is a surprising amount of aliens uh, in a lot of climate change literature. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, a lot. It's weird. Mm. And uh, speaking of the marketing earlier, did you know that Miller hated that advertising approach and how it painted Happy Feet as your bog-standard non-conformity narrative. Kind of worked, though. I mean, Happy Feet made over $380 million worldwide, although the second was a flop. It made its production budget back, but still lost the company, like, another $40 million. That's probably because, like, the first one came out during that... Do you remember that two-year period when we were all just obsessed with penguins? Yes, of that I know, I remember that. March of the Penguins, Morgan Freeman doco. Mm-mm, and then mm-mm. the second one came out, like, five years later, and everyone was like, who asked for this? Yeah, who asked we were for this bored shit? of I penguins. Hate, I know, I hate penguins now. <laughs> um, no, penguins are amazing. Anyways, well, they, like, finished the first one by solving like a big existential threat right mm-hmm. so the sequel's very existence with the like with the same themes and underlying threat and message is actually a statement on how it's not that easy of an issue to fix which isn't exactly comforting i mean mm-hmm. in the original happy feet we see humans fixing their problematic impact on the environment in neat little montage at the end yet the second one being there clearly implies one of two things either a money grab or that george miller is grabbing us by the neck and telling us wait a minute we're not done here Mm. yeah and as tempting as it is to argue that it was a money grab when you look at what miller has said about his artistic process and what he said about a potential third film it's unlikely that the sequel came out of monetary gain He said, and I'm going to quote him here, but I've never heard his voice, so I'm just going to read it in my own voice. If you put a gun to my head and said, you have to come up with a story for Happy Feet 3, I'd say shoot me. I would have no idea. The stories creep up on you. You just have to allow the stories to come. And then they get in like little earworms in your head and they won't go away. If that happens and we've got the energy, we'll do a third one. If it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. 
It's the only way you can do it. It has to be authentic. I really wanted to make this film better than the first one. Otherwise, at my age, what's the point? Respect for the process. But also, he actually thought Happy Feet 2 would be better than the first. <laughs> what the hell? George Miller, why would you think a sequel would be better than the first one? Has he not? Does he not know that Hollywood sequels and how they're always Shrek 2, worse than Mad the Max first? Mad Max 2, Terminator 2, okay. all... Okay, they're a good sequel, but there's like an abundance of other sequels that are just absolute shit. Yeah, but... Like Babe I, 2. <laughs> you haven't seen Babe. Oh, you have. I have seen Babe. Babe 2 broke me with that monkey with a gun. <laughs> Out of nowhere, <laughs> it just pops up a monkey with a gun. And I'm like, I, I just sat gun. there. I pointed at the TV and my mum was sitting next to me. I'm just like, monkey with a gun. There's a monkey, monkey with, with a gun. gun. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I remember the monkey <laughs> And then, I'm actually going to oh cry. Okay. And then, like, oh. that dog, <laughs> that dog with the wheel wheelchair legs gets <laughs> yeeted. Dog with the wheel. Monkey in the gun. Monkey with the gun. Dog with the wheel. <laughs> Babe in the city. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a weird movie, but I actually, I do have a defense for George Miller's weird sequels, but it gets a bit abstract. Are you familiar with the poet Robert Browning? Are you? Um, <laughs> well, Miss Semeljik <laughs> thought I was. Okay, so Robert Browning was a 19th century English poet. In one of his poems, Andrea del Sarto, he writes from the perspective of the eponymous Renaissance artist, one who was so talented that he was called Andrea the Faultless. Um, this is a weird theater, but vibes, my dog, vibes. Yeah. Anyway, it links vibes. back to that theory of auteurism. Okay. You would think that being a literal perfect artist would be a non-problem, but Browning actually uses Andrea to explore the idea of perfectionism being hindering, as it makes one scared to take risks and grow as an artist. Because with risks and experimentation comes failure. So if you take risk, you risk failure. It's like, oh no. Now, embedded in the poem is also some weird sexist shit where he blames his wife for not being enough of a hype man to, for his failure to live up to, like, the fame and glory of the the OGs. Like, you got your Leonardo, your Michelangelo, your Donatello, your Raphael. You just named the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles there, yeah, Nick. That's because I haven't studied art. Uh, fair enough. <laughs> and unless you have, the average person only really knows those four classic dead Italians. You haven't heard because of Andrea. Because of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Because you're Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Arguably more impactful than the paintings. Painters. Exactly. More impactful yeah. than the entire The Renaissance has nothing on TMNT. Exactly. The Renaissance? <laughs> Who is she? But, TMNT is the only woman that I know. <laughs> Anyway, but you haven't heard of Andrea, who is actually so good that he once perfectly recreated a painting by the aforementioned Raphael, the, the painter, yeah. not the turtle. <laughs> In this poem, Browning's most famous, famous line is, Ah, but a man's reach should exceed his grasp, or what's a heaven for? Which is essentially a recognition that the great artists that we recognize and remember aren't the perfect ones. They're not Andrea the Faultless. They're the ones who strove for greatness consistently, taking risks, being ambitious, despite the fear of failure. So yes, George Miller has missed the mark a few times. And yes, Happy Feet 2 does make me want to die every time Sven the Puffin starts singing Numa Numa, but regardless, Miller will undoubtedly go down as one of Australia's best directors because he had the ambition and the dedication to the craft. Failure be damned. Hmm. Okay, but Miller is still on thin fucking eyes. So are the penguins, Monica. We're <laughs> <laughs> continuing that thread of autourism, and this is a very non-academic, non-mon type of source, but... Do you know the YouTuber YMS, You Movie Sucks? Yeah, of course. Right, well, he made a video about the anti-organised religion aspects of this film, specifically through the depiction of Hugo Weaving's character, Noah. There are God the Gwyn and Robin Williams as Lovelace. And we'll get to that fucking accent later, Robin. <laughs> Honestly, just like the environmentalism, this theme is really hard to miss once you spot it. And it's something that comes up more in Miller's films. 
Yeah, and this whole movie is basically just taking the piss out of fundamentalist Christianity and evangelicals. Not in a, your religion is wrong way, but more in that sort of, hey, the way your congregation is organized and bows to authoritarianism in the human realm and instantly assumes that issues surrounding your contemporary society are acts of God as opposed to things that you have influence over, kinda sucks. Alright, before we get into the big patriarchal authoritarian depiction of Noah, let's talk about Lovelace. Now, Lovelace is a parody of American televangelists, which, if you're not familiar, is a combination of the word tele- television and evangelist. I know, big brain mode. Now, basically, they're those guys you see on TV advertising their religion with televised sermons. Yeah, and uh, we're not too familiar with them here in Australia because, like, our laws, our culture, and our dominant religions are very different from that of America's. We don't even have that many evangelists here, which is a movement that occurs in the Protestant sect of religion, the less cool branch of Christianity. Mm-hmm. Now, real-life televangelists are much more malicious than Happy Feet's Lovelace because there's no real form of capitalism amongst penguins, but they use the same predatory tactics, utilizing the congregation's faith and manipulating it for their own personal gain at the expense of the individual's better interests. Now, they do this through preaching, something known as prosperity gospel, which is the belief that wealth is a sign of God's favor and that when you give your wealth to the church as an expression of faith, one day that wealth will be returned to you and multiplied. That's also known as seed faith, the notion that donations are seeds that will one day be able to be harvested. Let me guess, though. You never get to reap what you sow in this case. Correct, correct. So when you give money to televangelists, it goes directly into their pockets, making them seemingly rich, something that which Miller visualizes as you see at early penguins with their small little piles of stones giving up what little they have to offer to Lovelace giant pile, right? Mm. Now, that is some capitalist shit right there, lads. Mm. And what do we do with the capitalists, Nick? We eat them. We eat them. We eat them. (laughs) (laughs) I'm making a salt rub right as we speak. Just (laughs) dibs on thigh. (laughs) So Lovelace asking for stones is the equivalent of of televangelists asking for donations. Exactly. And then what Miller does is what many people want to do in televangelists, but can't. He exposes Lovelace as a complete fraud and demonstrates that the words and prophecies that Lovelace spews are nothing but vague falsehoods. Oh, like horoscopes. That's such a Virgo thing for you to say. I'm actually a Pisces. But what do you mean what other people want to do but can't? Like, I'm sure many televangelists have been taken down. I mean, well, sure, you can have your little expose pieces and hashtag televangelists or cancel parties that you want, But the difference between Lovelace and the actual televangelist is faith backing them up. You can easily tell that Lovelace is a liar because we know that his talisman is a commonly known symbol for pollution and death. And you, the viewer, knows that humans aren't aliens or gods. Now, which is something Mumble has, like, obviously figured out. Now, debunking the structure through which Lovelace gains credibility is easy. But debunking the same thing that televangelists gain their credibility, though... Right, that's just like saying that God isn't real and your religion is false. Which isn't comforting. And also, not how you change people's minds about their authority figures. I mean, you were raised Christian, Nick, so Mm. you probably have more to say on this whole thing than I do. But I do want to talk about the imagery of their penguin god, the great Gwyn, and how it's depicted in the sky as a result of Aurora Aurora Australis. Aurora Australis? At this time of year? Shut up. (laughs) Shut up. Shut up. Yes, Aurora Australis is Aurora Borealis, but in the Southern Hemisphere. And we know that it's a Southern Hemisphere because the only place where Emperor Penguins live naturally is Antarctica. So in the first act of the film, you see Noah, the leader of the Penguins, basically hosting a sermon to encourage strength and solidarity between the Penguins as they fight against the cold winds of Mm. winter. Yeah, and just as a note, if you haven't picked up on it, Noah is the name of the second human patriarch in the Bible that kids learn outside of the Jesus stuff. I mean, we kind of skipped over that Cain and Abel thing in my school because, like, it's, it's really hard to teach kids not to kill each other in my neighbourhood. Hands in part. Yeah, good old HP. <laughs> anyway, Noah is significant because his narrative is that one time that God decided to start humanity all over again just by flooding the earth. 
and flooding is actually the most common natural disaster narrative that's been consistently passed down through history, along with fire, Mm -hmm. and has now been translated into climate change fiction. Exactly, and what we see in Happy Feet is this character, Noah, acting as a particularly patriarchal manner. Essentially, the colony is his congregation, and he utilises faith to maintain that control over them. Mm. Yeah, and it should go without saying that Christianity as an organised religion and patriarchal values and structures go hand in hand. In Catholicism, at least, the biggest and coolest form of Christianity, Yeah, all of the authorities on faith are men, except maybe nuns. But then again, the sisterhood has typically been used historically as another assertion of control over women through religion. Yeah, it's all about control. In the Aurora Strala scene when Mumble gets dropped as an egg, we see the harmony through conformity as all of the other penguins envision the great Gwyn looking down over them. Everyone except for Memphis, that is, who is looking at Norma Jean. Now, Memphis is then essentially implicitly punished for his act of nonconformity when his dancing leads him to dropping the egg. Also, didn't you find that aspect kind of really hella ableist? Like, the implication that neurodivergence stems from or is genuinely connected to being dropped as an infant or other gestational issues, which in some cases is true. Like, that's why you're not supposed to drink when you're preggers, but it's still a yuck for me, dog. Yeah, I would argue that that issue develops throughout the film. Like, Mumble's tap dancing, which, yeah, is basically a disability allegory, is initially something that hinders Mumble's ability to integrate into society. Yet, instead of trying to hide it, which he can't really do, He instead decides to live an authentic life, one that brings him closer to his true love and ends up helping him save the colony. By the end, he's actually embraced by them. He's embraced by the colony that once rejected him as they reconcile that, hey, tap dancing to singing is actually fun and good. Miller is in essence making the statement that people who aren't neurotypical or who have disabilities should be accepted. They shouldn't have to hide what makes them different to be accepted, and they will be at the forefront of the revolution. It feels like such... It feels... uh, It still feels really condescending, though. Like, the way they bully him for not singing, it's such a me-against-them kind of thing. Like, it just rubs me the wrong way how Mumble is treated by others, especially as a kid. Like, how the hell does he have trauma? Mm. Well, it's a kid's movie, so I guess that explains the trauma, but (laughs) it's also, like, a reflection of how society treats people with disabilities. Like, you can't really have an allegory about prejudice turning into acceptance without the prejudice first. But back to the religious penguins. (laughs) (laughs) I can't believe I'm I'm at a point in my life where that's a sentence that I just said. Religious penguins. (laughs) You hinted at this earlier, and knowing Miller's filmography, I'm going to guess that Noah, as well as being a religious patriarch, is also a straight-up authoritarian. Real-life emperor penguins are animals that form colonies, particularly around breeding season. However, they don't have a distinct social hierarchy like we see in the film, so Noah being their leader is entirely a George Miller creation. Distinguished listeners, we present to you George Miller, the creator of Mad Max and Dictator Penguins. Dictator penguins. Now, it's a toss-up to what specific flavor authoritarianism is implemented in Happy Feet. Generally, authoritarianism is when a governing body demands strict obedience at the cost of personal freedom and, and expression. For example, Nazism was a form of authoritarianism, as was a lot of, if not all, communist countries. I would argue that what we see in Happy Feet is closest to a form of authoritarianism called oligarchy. However, now, mm-hmm. other than being my letterboxed handle, <laughs> follow me on letterboxed, <laughs> an oligarchy is when a small number <laughs> of people have control over an entire population. We do see that whilst Noah is the de facto leader, that there are other elder penguins that he confers with. Mm. Well, yeah, I don't know. He talks to the other elders, but Noah's the main man, though. So it really looks like more of a form of despotism or dictatorship, both forms of autocracy, the rule of one, wherein a single figurehead is the leader. 
Actually, yeah, that's that's so, kind of mm-hmm. true. Uh, and despotism would be more fitting with Miller's filmography, exactly. such as Immortan Joe in Mad Max Fury Road and Rex I and mean, Babe. Regardless, Norma's control of the penguin population is an expression of authoritarianism, which, as you said, Miller had criticised time and time again. Yep, in Babe, it's revealed that Rex the dog... Also voiced by Hugo Weaving. What is it with Hugo Weaving and George Miller films voicing an authoritarian asshole? I mean, he also plays ass like he plays a lot of assholes, like the Matrix and Red Skull and Captain America. <laughs> yeah. The first Captain America. Yeah. But it, mm. it's uh it's revealed that Rex the dog in Babe, the authoritarian leader in that film, he actually isn't that tough. And in Mad Max Fury Road, Immortan Joe spoiler, gets his face ripped off by one of the victims of his autocratic regime. And, once again, we see the undermining of an authoritarian regime by the underdog protagonist in Happy Feet, when, at the climax, we see Mubble leading the colony in a rousing tap number that ends pollution and overfishing in the Antarctic. Tap essentially represents progression, whereas seeing represents tradition. Eventually, we recognise that these two things can coexist. In fact, they can be complementary if traditionalists are willing to compromise with the authentic lives of the divergent souls. That's beautiful. Also, you can tell that Hugo Weaving is like old English white, because like... The Celts have known about tap dancing slapping for a fucking while. They do, and they did. Now, it's interesting that you bring age into the equation. Now, we've established that George Miller is old, but not a baby boomer. So it stands to reason that the generational perspectives aren't limited to Noah as a cranky boomer. Rather, it's a demonstration of how generation gaps function. For example... We, as Gen Zs, would see Mumble as a reflection of perhaps ourselves, or our slightly older comrades, the Millennials. We'd see Norma Jean and Memphis as Gen X and Noah and the other elders as boomers. However, your parents might see Mumble as a reflection of themselves, so they'd see Mumble as Gen X, Norma Jean and Memphis as boomers, and Noah as one of the silent generation. That's interesting, especially considering that Norma Jean and Memphis are actually references to two very famous individuals of the silent generation. Norma Jean Mm. was actually Marilyn Monroe's birth name, and Memphis is a city in Tennessee that is famously associated with Elvis Presley, but don't ask me why. I couldn't figure it out. (laughs) Exactly. Like, I actually didn't even know that. But what's actually interesting is that things like your pathetic little war in Gen X and the larger cultural war happening between boomers and millennials are nothing new. Although the term generation gap was created by social scientists in the 1960s to explain baby boomers rebelling against their parents, burning their draft cards, listening to rock and roll, smoking their marijuana. You remember when baby boomers were, like, cool? They probably don't. (laughs) Anyway, despite the creation of the term occurring in the 1960s, the phenomenon is a tale as old as time. Alexis Dick Tocqueville, an early 1800 political scientist, remarked, and I quote, Among democratic nations, each generation is a new people. It really makes you think of, like, a 13th century peasant back in the day, like doing what all teenagers do, except <laughs> they live in, like, a one-room one sort of mud hut. So instead of, my god, dad, get out of my room, it's, my god, dad, get out of my corner of the room. <laughs> so the generation gap is primarily due to the ever-changing landscape of the world as we know it. Our adolescence and the world in which we were moulded was vastly different from the one that our parents experienced. And this is multiplied particularly for people growing up in different countries from their parents, and it is further exasperated whenever we see a massive leap in technological advances. Not to mention that teenage rebellion is actually a widely recognised psychological stage of development necessary for the formation of one's own identity that is separate from that of their parents. Yeah, like, consider the types of media you were consuming as a kid compared Mm. to what you listen to or watch these days, like... As a kid, you basically went along with your folks. You agreed with them when they said something. You barracked for their shitty footy team and watched them fuck up the grand final three times in two years. You took their opinions and their teachings and they became yours. So if you didn't go through that phase of rebellion, sorry folks, you're a fucking nerd cuck. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. Now rebellion is an essential part of growing up though. So if you're not rebelling, then you're not really growing and you're just kind of stuck with where your parents are. 
And we see that exact thing happening, both generated by Mumble, helping them solve the food shortage, and then to Mumble by his own son, and George Miller actually frames rebellion as a good thing, contrary to what the liberals may tell you. Mm. Now, speaking of rebelling against one's parents, Nick, as a white man who spent a lot of time in white Australian culture because of your parents' hobbies, let's talk about those elephant seals. (laughs) Yes, I actually found it kind of interesting how the animals almost sort of like formed little countries based on species. Mm -mm. Like that leopard seal we see was Eastern European. The Adelis are either Spanish or just general Latin American. Sven in the sequel is Scandinavian. I mean, the emperor penguins were mostly American with a few Aussies doing a neutral-ish accent. But at one point we also see Magda Zubansky, an Australian icon, play Mm. a penguin with a Russian accent and it's just never explained. Yeah, and Robin Williams and his little Mexican accent and his accent too. We'll get to that. But yes, those elephant seals were 100% Australian male culture. And to indefinitely prove this without a doubt, you need to only look at two things. The names of the elephant seals and the voice actor for Trev. Who? Uh, Trev's the elephant seal who tells Mumble Lovelace and the Amigos that trespassing on elephant yeah, beach yeah, is a crime. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, like, who voiced him, though? Oh, um, you know, just uh, a little little, little known celebrity called um, Steve motherfucking Croc Hunter <gasps> Irwin. Oh, my God. Wait, wait, wait. What the hell? Steve Irwin? Steve As my boy Irwin. Steve-o? My big Steve-o? My, my boy Steve-o? My boy Steve-o. Oh my god, yeah. are you kidding me? I had no idea. Yeah, he was also supposed to voice an albatross in another scene, but it got deleted, mm-hmm. and he was also oh. meant to voice Brian in the sequel, but unfortunately he passed away before oh. the first one was even released. In fact, the anniversary of his death was, like, last week, and I was sad oh, all day. Fuck. Yeah, I know. Now, Steve-O is basically the face of positive Australiana, and I've had a lot of experience with men of that generation through interacting with the friends of my parents, and I know that from your experience with these sorts of men as a Cambodian woman is going to be hella different from mine as a white Australian former woman. Yeah, like, you've never genuinely feared for your life on a regular basis. It's your white privilege for me. Yeah, 100% it is. It's white privilege. But um, basically, at the end of the day, what I'm saying is that I can totally emphasize with this animated tap-dancing Frodo-voiced penguin. Mm, so you really went off to the deep end this year. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know that emperor penguins can dive to a depth of 500 meters oh and hold god. their breath for 20 minutes? Yes, Monica, I've gone off the fucking deep end. Oh my god. <laughs> anyway... Australian culture is, like, highly obsessed with masculinity. Now, no, I'm not going to go too far into toxic masculinity for two reasons. The first is that when you throw that phrase around willy-nilly without leaving room for nuance, I believe it unnecessarily creates a blanket binary between a good positive man and a bad toxic man. Masculinity in and of its- in and of itself isn't something that should be shamed for its mere existence. It and its cultural impacts on Australia should be understood with more contemplation. And the second reason I'm not going to go too far into it is that we already did a deep dive into that last week. Oh, honey, I can go even deeper. That's not the first time I've heard that one, but it's the first time I've believed it. Now, a recent survey by the Manbox has found that amongst young Australian men, The strong notions of masculinity, such as expectations of strength, resilience, being the breadwinner, and constantly being recipient to invitations towards sex, have all held firm. Yet, we have seen small amounts of progress, as fewer young Australian men are homophobic or are putting all the onus on women to do basic household chores. Talk about a low fucking bar. Like, Jesus Christ, women are getting murdered for existing, but boo-hoo, men get a fucking gold star for being less homophobic. Yeah, I, I know, but, like, it's, it's, a, it's a low bar. Like, you have to dig to get under that bar. But when you consider the fact that masculinity is perhaps the most pervasive colonial Australian myth, the fact that these aspects are slipping away indicates that men are actually getting better. And failing to acknowledge that maybe, maybe... Maybe not all men are trash. 
actually does have a negative impact on men's mental health. This is going to sound very centrist of me relative to my usual gender politics, but I don't condone the constant divisive women's rights versus men's rights approach to gender equality discourse, because framing the betterment of humanity as a competition between whose rights should we care about more essentially ignores the fact that we're all fucked up and we're all in need of help in different areas regardless of pants, content, and identity. Hmm. I don't know though, I think society has become more aware of the effects of toxic masculinity prevalent in men and how that affects the people around them. Now, men now recognise this and are forced to acknowledge the fact that they are possibly dangerous and have a certain sector privilege that women don't have. I agree, it shouldn't have been a us against them approach, but we can't forget that more women are affected directly or indirectly by a man's actions. Now, every nine days a woman is killed by a male partner, every 29 days men are killed by their partner as well like it is a problem now also let's just not forget that when we talk about gender equality it's particularly seen in the public eye as simply man against woman man versus woman so it's that binarization isn't it so it doesn't account for the minority that are non-binary or non-conforming see you could bring up all those statistics about men killing women but on the other hand you can also bring up all the statistics about men killing themselves Men comprise 6 out of the 8 suicides per day in Australia, and men kill themselves at twice the rate of the national road toll, but it's that exact statistical who kills who more wank-off rhetoric on take on the discourse that I'm tired of. Yes, in the public eye it gets discussed like that, but it doesn't mean that we have to do it the same way. We're supposed to be queer subversive assholes. We're supposed mm -hmm. to be radicals. Sure, we've... We as a culture have started recognising the problems with masculinity, and that's good, and we should keep doing that, because we're not done interrogating that, and we're not done tearing that down. But simply calling out half the population, and even being unable to say masculinity without putting toxic before it, doesn't exactly provide much insight into the issue. You can't just keep shit-talking masculinity as toxic whenever it gets brought up, because then you reaffirm the idea that toxicity is inherent. When you do that, you cr what you do is create the implication that men are bad people just because of the way that they've learnt to express their masculinity and conform with their culture. Sure, there is plenty of toxic masculinity in Australian culture, but I'm less interested in that label of toxic masculinity and more interested in how masculinity functions in Australian culture overall. The toxic aspects and notions of masculinity ingrained in Australian culture hurt everybody, not just the men, but the women and children too. What Happy Feet does is demonstrate that masculinity can actually be good, neutral, and yes, bad, but overall it demonstrates that what the recent findings from all these surveys have confirmed, that masculinity and its expression in Australia is in the process of changing and becoming better. How we express masculinity through compassion as opposed to strength is shedding masculinity's more harmful aspects. Just like Mumble shed his baby feathers in the fucking book. There's a book. In the Happy Feet movie storybook and in the original cut of the film, Mumble loses his baby feathers when he jumps <laughs> off the cliff to follow the fishing boat. And I feel like I lived in the Bernstein Stein, Stein reality as a kid because I could have sworn on my grandfather's grave that it, it happens in the movie, which is why I hated Happy Feet 2 before I even saw it. And I refused to watch it as a kid because the ads had Mumble with all those baby feathers and 10-year-old me was like Annie Wilkes and Mitzra going, hey, that's not right. He shed his feathers in the first one. So I boycotted the fuck out of Happy Feet 2 until this year, and then what do I get? What do I get? I got a bunch of fucking elephant seals singing the theme from Rawhide, and an even less consistent mumble feathers. That's what I got. Fuck you, George. Uh, <laughs> God, I think a lot. you might be the one that needs psychological help. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about you, but I think you need a lot of psychological evaluations. <laughs> <laughs> But actually, that kind of reminds me, I feel like I might have like seen him shed his feathers at one point, like last time yeah, I saw when I was saw. a kid. Like, I'm pretty sure I did. Maybe I dreamt it. I have no idea. It's so weird, man. It's, it's the Australian Mandela effect. Like, <laughs> if you saw this movie in cinemas as a kid, you remember him losing his feathers 
tweet us, write in, message us. If you remember Mumble losing his feathers, please, just so I don't feel so alone. I, I, I feel like I have. Maybe I dreamt it. I feel like my Because I feel like every time I watch Happy Feet 2, it's like an hallucination. <laughs> okay, so back to the film. So in Happy Feet 2, we first encounter Brian the Beach Master, the elephant seal, as Mumble and the little chicks come face to face with him when crossing a narrow pathway above a crevice. Brian refuses to back up, as in his culture, backing up is a sign of weakness that could threaten his authority and status as the beach master, which obviously is a parallel to the masculine expectation of courage and not backing down from a challenge from a rival, as well as something that actually does hold true to elephant seal behaviour. Now, why do I get a feeling that you know way too much about elephant seals? Because I do. Did you know that during mating season, elephant seals fuck so hard that they lose up to a third of their body weight? Well, that really seals the deal for me then. <laughs> what? I want to pray to be an elephant seal in my next life. Bitch, I already am. <laughs> Do you fuck that hard that you lose a third of your body weight? No, I was just calling myself fat ass. You know I don't get laid. I had no idea you fucked that much. Oh my god. Um, he's kind of. He, whoa. Oh my god. Oh my goodness, Nick. Anyway, we immediately see the consequence of this kind of masculine display when Brian falls down into the crevice. He's almost certainly doomed. The values that Mumble then acts on, kindness, generosity, forgiveness, and compassion, invigorate him and spurs Mumble into saving Brian. What we see is how value systems and the associated virtues impact the expression of masculinity, and all of this happens in front of Mumble's kid and a few other chicks, as well as Brian's own children, Shane and Darren. Now keep that in mind, because Brian says that he owes Mumble a favour for saving his life. When Mumble does go to redeem that favour, Brian's in the middle of teaching Shane and Darren how to square up. He's imparting those masculine values of violence and pressure on men to keep the peace. He's isolationism, self-reliance, and honour into his sons. But when Mumble turns up, Brian's like, no way am I redeeming this favour. Like, it would mean that I have to back down now. So his values of strength and violence overturn his value of keeping a promise. Hmm, it's like the subtle reinforcement of good old Aussie masculinity. You know, I'm just simply waiting for Brian to step up from his couch to get a can of beer to watch St Kilda lose for the 1,000th time. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, They're probably up to like, I don't know how many games they would have played, but they're probably up there. Yeah. Least oh, successful poor, poor team guys. in the AFL. Is it? It is. It's Oh god. They've won the most wooden spoons and they've only won a grand final once and that was in 1966. Anyway. Uh. <laughs> friendship poor ended guy. with St Kilda. I now barrack for the Tigers. Ooh, actually don't <laughs> quote me on that. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know what any of this stuff is. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so Mumble's kid, Eric, starts to sing his opera, and there's a fuckload to say about music's role in this film. But anyway, that convinces Brian to release his hold on his stubbornness. We see that through Eric, Shane, and Darren, that the more negative, less caring aspects of demonstrating masculinity are being shed by the next generation, whilst at the same time having reverence for their forefathers, not abandoning them in the past, but dragging them to keep up with progress and update their value systems. Okay, yeah, but also know that Brian's largest success is found when he does what he was so reluctant to do, when he backs up to hit the beat. It provides the force necessary to move the Doomberg. Doomberg? Bro, please don't tell me that's the iceberg <laughs> blocking the penguin colony as a fucking name. And you know that fucking name? You put that as a fucking name. Into this- <laughs> I did not spend, like, Doomberg. two hours on the Happy Feet Wikipedia just to not put that in the script. Anyway, no comment. Oh my god. No go- says a comment, follows it up with no comment. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, 
we do see George Miller crossing both the generational gap and the gap that exists between men of differing sensitivities, reflecting that the masculinity that grips Australian culture so tightly can be moulded and changed for the better. And also, it's pretty fucking weird to see all these themes expressed through a baby penguin saying the kings are all fools and asking an elephant seal where its honour is through opera. Well, Happy Feet 2 just broke I, the first I, time I saw it. I honestly, to be, I, why? Why is this a thing? I don't understand why Happy Feet 2 was a thing. Like, I understand why George Miller would make it, but like, why would you make a penguin do an opera about, about like, fucking revolution well i don't understand it's not really about revolution it's more about uh you know i don't know like this is really odd but um kind of like a small little tangent but it was like that like i was watching happy feet but i was also like a week ago i was watching the the uh philip island penguins coming out of the the water was so cute i was like look at them they're little fucking penguins and they walk like stupid little walking style it's it's so cute and then you watch happy feet and you're like i want to kill every single penguin that exists um <laughs> like i yeah. actually am for penguin genocide now because <laughs> of happy feet i was gonna say whoa that's too far but then i remembered that these assholes they do surf and bird numa numa they do Eric's Little Opera, they do Rawhide, and then they do Under Pressure, with, like, no breathing room between any of those. Yeah. It's like getting shot in the chest five times in a row. I, know I wanted it. to commit dead. Why? <laughs> I want to commit... I want to commit dead. <laughs> but seriously, though, like, why... Like, I, I cannot get over Sven, Sven, Sven's Numa Numa, which is... I actually don't know how to pronounce it. It's Dragostor... And it's actually a Romanian song. It's it's by a group, um, and it's a Moldovian group, and they spoke Romanian. And I was like, I used to love the song when I was a kid. Like, it's, it's in my playlist my called name. Cursed Songs. <laughs> it's such a cursed song. <laughs> I, I can't, I can't. But like, I think I, I think he put it in because like it used to be a meme. Do you remember that Numa Numa guy? from like yeah, old youtube right and so i think they put it in because it was a meme and so they're like oh maybe we can get the kids with this with this meme song haha <laughs> um honestly the only thing that they're missing right now is a Fortnite dance and oh, um no. you know a classic drake song and don't make happy feet three Fortnite dance <laughs> oh my god <laughs> also they're all king if, if miller uh, does get that little worm <laughs> he's gonna run out of Queen songs if he makes Happy Feet three. Like Jesus Christ, he keeps using Queen. Mm, as if the as if as if little Gen Zs know what Queen is. They do. Queen Queen is okay. You know. I will ask my sister after this episode what Queen is, and okay, I would guarantee you she would not know who Queen is. Oh my god. Okay, then I'll ask. I don't know. I don't know any young people. Yeah, you're lucky. I'm old. <laughs> you are old. I'm 20 and I'm fucked. Yeah, 20 and um, still watching the footy while drinking a beer in the couch with the lads. I mean, that's something that... I don't that... drink beer and it wasn't with the lads. Actually, no, it was with the lads because it was with my father and my dog. Exactly. We're the lads. The lads. <laughs> the boys. Sorry, what a Saturday for? The, the, the boys. boys. The boys. <laughs> and for throwing up after last night <laughs> oh yikes but yeah like i i don't understand Let, let's let's just talk about the way the penguins are animated for example oh. can i just talk about the way the penguins the female penguins in that this lipstick. case have lipstick and have boobies they have <laughs> boobies boobs they have penguin boobs how I don't understand why they have penguin boobies. I don't I mean, get it. What how What is else the purpose are gonna tell of that they're women? The, the voices. Why do they have to feminize everything? Like honestly, I'm not a furry, but those penguins <laughs> be looking slim thick. <laughs> oh my! But there is the absurd amount of dick jokes. Like yeah, when Mumble hatches, like Memphis is like, oh yeah, you get in the little penguin pouch i forgot what it was called what the f- and okay, he's like watch the beak and it's like ooh, it's it's implied that he's just ran headfirst into his dad's dick and then like when they do their first um fishing trip uh 
Gloria and Mumble come out and they're sliding all over each other and they do missionary. They do sixteen. Wait, what? Wait, what? No, 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 no. Okay, they what? No, 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 no. That's not okay. That is so not okay. In like five seconds. No, no. Are you kidding me? And this is a kids' film. Oh my god! I didn't even see that. Nick, are you kidding me? Are you kidding I'm not me? Kidding you. I watched this with I my sister. With my my sister's did you eleven. Not see that? No, my sister's eleven. I thought they were just sliding. I thought they were just like hugging each other. What? Oh, I feel like George I've... Miller got 69ing penguins in a film. Are you kidding and he me? Made bank doing it. And I didn't even know there were 69 penguins anyways. <laughs> I I I uh, Nick, that's not fair. But speaking of the penguin designs, um just the way the penguins were designed racially is so weird. Like do you know that American penguin? They made him like big and they made him like, you know, like have a deep voice and you can just tell like you know when you look it's like that racializing of animals like you don't need to racialize animals but they did in happy feet and it feels so weird like they made like the chubby penguin a black like you know that baby penguin and he's like chubby and he's kind of fat yeah they made and him black. everyone's talking about their heart songs and yeah. he starts doing a little rap i know and i was like this is um this doesn't really sit right with me, guys. Just something is off about this thing. Like, mm, mm, not like, passing the vibe check. Not that did not pass the vibe check, and just the designs overall, the disgusting slim thickness of it. Ugh, yuck. Like, please, that was irony when I was talking about being horny. I was not horny. I was terrified. Okay, <laughs> we all know that. But. Good. I know, but it's just why. And talking about the way they're racially depicted, the accents. Why would you give the amigos those like stereotypical Chicano accents? You know, those fucking Mexican accents that are really, really, absolutely just racist. Like, I was looking at the voice actors. I'm like, you got none of you guys are Latino, and also it's just perpetuating these really bad stereotypes about Mexican men being really predatory and really, like, kind of creepy and always harassing women. And also being relegated to being side characters. Exactly. And the same goes with Robin Williams' black accent with Lovelace. Now, that that's kind of, like, a nuanced one because it's a specific black scent that isn't inherent to, like, rappers or to, like, the ghetto. It's something that's inherent to, like the 1960s and 70s of like southern black sense of like those kind of southern um african americans who follow uh kind of those like religions like that that christianity or catholicism kind of thing right and so it's kind of that black televangelist accent that mm. robin williams embodies and i love robin williams you know he's an amazing talented actor but why would you do a black scent for a penguin? Yeah, it, like it was fitting in character, but it, it does it does feel mm, weird. It feels really weird, and they obviously like I understand why they made him like they animated him that way, they designed him that way. Like he was fat, and he was like it's meant to show the greediness of televangelists, and I understand those kind of like uh, religious authority fears. Like I understand that, but it's also just. Uh, I I can't. I just I I could. I watched it the entire time. And I was like, this is so subtly racist, and it's something that kids watch, and it's reinforced in so much of kids' films of these racialized, like stereotypes. And when these kids grow up, they start believing these stereotypes, and I I I just don't really like that. Um, Do you reckon that sort of thinking still applies when it's animated penguins, like? Yeah, I get it. It's a black scent, and that's not okay. We mm. had the case earlier this year where Brie La- no, not Alison Brie got a lot of heat over voicing a Vietnamese character, even though she is very wait, white. Are you, wait, I actually so, didn't know that. Yeah, in BoJack Horseman, she oh. voices um, the American Vietnamese character okay. Diane, and she got a lot of flack mm. over that, but it was very retrospective. So this is obviously yeah, something the that thing is, like, is only just coming yeah, into our society. Yeah, but here's the thing with Alison Brie, I think what's different is the fact, because I haven't seen Bojack Horseman, so is does her character have an accent, like a specific Vietnamese accent? 
Uh, no, she was born okay, in America. So, she was born okay, in Boston. As, okay, as someone who is Asian and I was born in the West, I'm as much as I want an Asian person, specifically an Asian American to do that, the difference between the penguins is that they're racialized through their accents. So if these yeah, but, penguins just spoke normally, I think they would be fine. But they were specific accents and they were caricatures of these, you know, ethnicities. They were caricatures of Latinos and these Latinos and Mexican like accents were depicted in very creepy. They were predatory. They were kept harassing these other female penguins. They would be very flirtatious and all of that. And these are all stereotypes that are seen in media and they're reinforced in Happy Feet. And it, like even though it doesn't apply in because they're penguins, it does apply because it utilizes accents to racialize it. So that's why I think Happy Feet is more problematic in that way than I'd say Brie Larson because she's just voicing a character and there's no accent. And I understand that creating space for POC uh, actors and I 100% am for that. But in Happy Feet's case, it's basically just a caricature of an ethnicity. Like if some, if for example, if somebody had a Chinese penguin, right? And it would be like, oh, you know, like I make dumplings, aha, uh-huh, ching chong. Like that's, that's racist. So they were doing the exact same thing with Latinos and, and the Mexican accents. That's the exact same thing. And mm. I'm not for that. Speaking of weird things about this these movies what did you think about the gay krill i krill? love the gay krill ah uh, i i love the gay krill i uh, it's I love genuinely the genuinely my favorite brad pitt performance it's so funny and also how his sort of um narrative arc was basically an allegory for revolution again and he he's he's so great. I don't, he doesn't have to be in the film, and once again, you could cut him out, and everything would probably just be similar. It, it might even add coherency to the film, just like last week. Uh, I spoke about cutting out the gay characters just to get some fucking coherency, not to minimize uh, representation, but just you know, to, for the for the benefit of the script. But at the same time, unlike the kissing booth, Brad Pitt and Matt Damon just add so much that I couldn't bring myself to fully hate Happy Feet Two. Mm. Like you hated it, I you hated, hated it a hated lot. Happy Feet Two, but Brad Pitt and Matt Damon as gay krills really made me happy. Like obviously they are both depicted as men because they have male voice actors and obviously they're it's very beautiful seeing how there's a gay relationship and I'm and I'm seeing it from a queering right that it's definitely a homosexual relationship between these two it's not a bros it's not a relationship between two bros it's a relationship between two homosexual curls and I think that's really beautiful (laughs) I know I'm not about to say that it's a relationship between two homosexual girls. I know that I was... What have we done? Have we... I have never thought that I was... How did How we get did here? We get... How do we get here? <laughs> you say no. Okay, that's not the code. But, <laughs> but like, I... How? But anyways, it's just a beautiful relationship between two homosexual girls, and I'm happy, and I live... <laughs> And I'm happy for them. I I want them to thrive in the world as two uh, uh, homo krills. And I said that Will and Bill. <laughs> and they were talking about having kids together. That's so cute. Oh. Yeah. That's, we'll adopt. You adopt. Oh, Dad. Exactly. Like, I think that's really cute. I think it's... Oh, it's yeah. so cute. Oh, my God. Anyways. Um... Uh, Let's talk about uh, Magda Spensky. Magda, uh, I just... Because you could say that this is a very transnational mm. film. Like, We're for all the shit we gave it... transnationalism now, baby. <laughs> yeah, for all the shit we gave it for its black sense and all that, you do have actors from different countries mm. in this. Mostly just America and Australia. Which is good. But that's transnationalism. That is. And... One of them's Magda Zubansky, 
and uh, she stars in one of my favourite films, uh, Crocodile Hunter, it's Collision Course, <laughs> also with Steve Irwin. Yes. And she's amazing, and uh, she's genuinely hilarious. She's, yeah. And I, I don't know, I just, I wrote that down as, not really as I have much to say mm. about it, but just because I, I feel yeah, like it should exactly. be noted that she's, she's and really she's good. And she's a cultural icon as well. Like, she's, she's in Catherine She Kim. is. She isn't Yeah, Kim. and this film's full of cultural icons for Australia. You've also got Hugh Jackman as Memphis. You've got Nicole Kidman as Norma Jean. It's like, oh, damn, this some good shit. All right. I hated this. I'm so glad we're done here. I hate these films, and I hate you. <laughs> no, you don't. Come on. <laughs> okay, tell me okay, what's up next. Something that's a little bit more better, in my humble opinion, than Happy Feet. It's another double feature. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I don't know. It's we are watching. It's gonna be, have to be really good. We are good. watching Avengers and Avengers: Age of Ultron, all for Ooh. your Chris Evan thirst needs, Nick. Oh my god! <laughs> you were gonna have a boner the entire time. We're gonna be talking um, about it. I'm not gonna repeat the thing I said on Wednesday night about wanting to be that. Oh log. yes. <laughs> I know you want to be Big that log. Anyways, um, God. I know. I, you know, I actually once wrote a fanfic about Tony and Bruce contemplating whether or not they should give Ultron an asshole, and it was called Ass of Ultron, and it was really heavily implied that Tony wanted to fuck I, Ultron. Mm, I, I, mm, um, <laughs> honestly, I just want an excuse to talk about Avengers because I had my Marvel phase when I was 14, and I have so much useless information about the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's incredibly useless. Like, I don't know how I know the exact heights and the exact ages and the exact birthplaces of all these characters, all these fictional characters. But um, anyways, wow, that ep is going to be a doozy. Um, yeah, I'm excited, though. I love the Avengers. Yeah. That's, I've been meaning to rewatch uh, some superhero films. No reason. Just wanted to. Felt like it. But in the meantime, if you want more memes, behind-the-scenes content, and general updates, you can find us on Facebook at As a Film Student Podcast, Instagram As Film Student Pod, or you can watch me talk to myself and Bully Khan on Twitter at As Film Student. All the links will be in the description, as well as our sources. And if you want, you can find us on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Podcasts. Very happy about that one. Finally, Breaker, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, Overcast, and Castro. But for now, I've been Nick. And I've been Mon. Thanks for listening.